Welcome to the podcast for Sunday, August 27th, 2017. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this is me in 1992. I was 25 years old. I turned 50 today, so not today, this year, sorry, this year. Uh, so it seems like a lifetime uh, away, doesn't it? Uh, I was in my third year of graduate school at Drew Theological School in Madison, New Jersey. Now, technically, uh, there are only three years of seminary, so that should have been uh, the year that I graduated, but instead, uh, it was more like an intermission. You see, I was just one of a handful of my classmates that have actually gone straight from high school to college to graduate school. Many of my classmates were second career uh, going into the ministry. The average age was right around 35. I was in no rush to get out into the real world. I knew that I had a lifetime of ministry ahead of me, and I wanted to make sure that I had the preparations I needed to be a pastor that could endure for the long haul. So, during what would have been my third year of seminary, I took a year off, at least a year off from standard classroom education, and I decided to work full-time in a local church uh, to begin to learn the aspects that go into being a United Methodist pastor. Well, Madison United Methodist Church was my training ground. They did a fabulous job, I might add. But I also, during that year off, signed up to do a year of clinical pastoral education called CPE. This is where one is trained to be a hospital chaplain. Now, you may wonder why, if I was going to be a local church pastor, would I want to be a hospital chaplain? Well, without a shadow of the doubt, what I learned about being a pastor in the hospital has become the foundation for so much of what I do in pastoral care here in the local church. When I was 25 years old, I applied uh, for ordination to be a pastor in the United Methodist Church. Now, the ordination process can take anywhere from three to eight years to complete. But when one is ready to apply uh, for commissioning, or when I did it for ordination, uh, Pastor Aaron was just commissioned this past annual conference, uh, that process takes one full year. It involves in-depth psychological evaluations. Uh, Two of them you have to do a year apart, numerous recommendations, And at least when I was there, I had to go through about a two- to three-hour interview with ten other clergy. Those clergy had critiqued and questioned the 80 to 90 pages of written material that I had turned in about pastoral care, theology, preaching, and United Methodist polity. Now, for me, at age 25, 80 to 90 pages of writing was a lot. And in case you're worried... I did pass my ordination interviews, by the way. Now, I tell you this because in today's sermon on Christianity's family tree, uh, we get to meet the remarkable Mr. John Calvin. In 1536, John Calvin, at the age of 25, had written the first edition of his Institutes of Christian Religion. It was 456 pages long. Now, one could say it was 456 pages of his core beliefs, but that would be like saying the ocean has a few molecules of water inside it. No, no, it's such an understatement. It doesn't come close to the magnitude of what was accomplished. Calvin intended this to be an elementary manual for those that wanted to know something about evangelical faith. 
Contemporary theologian Brian McLaren said that it was a subversive move to counter the religious hierarchies at at his time. And again, that doesn't even begin to come close to scratching the surface of what his work meant. Others have claimed that his writing stands among the greatest works of Christian theology and Western literature. Calvin went on to expand the Institute three times, and by 1559, it was 1,800 pages long. Kind of puts my 80 to 90 page ordination paper to shame. Welcome to the fourth installment in our series uh, called Christianity's Family Tree, What Other Christians Believe and Why. And today we have the pleasure of getting to know the Presbyterian Church. Now, the goal of this series is not to prove why uh, United Methodists are right and everyone else gets it wrong. Instead, it's to open our hearts so we can learn from our fellow brothers and sisters in faith and learn not only uh, how the church developed over the years, but to see what it is that our uh, sister denominations can teach us so that we might be more faithful followers of Jesus. Once again, I'd like to give credit to Pastor Adam Hamilton, whose study series informed and inspired me uh, during these two months. Now, in case you're just joining us, uh, allow me to give you a very quick summary of how we got to this place. In the first few centuries after Jesus, there were no distinctions among Christians. They were just all called people of the way. By the end of the first millennium, however, Christians in the eastern parts of the Roman Empire and Christians in the western parts had split, and they formed two separate churches, the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. And those distinctions continued for about another 500 years or so until a man named Martin Luther came along. Luther was a Catholic priest who became disillusioned with what he saw to be many abuses in the church, especially among the leadership, things that he believed ran counter to the gospel. And so in 1517, he wrote his 95 theses and nailed it to the door of Wittenberg Church, and that became the start of the Protestant Reformation. Luther was protesting where the church had gone and how badly out of line it seemed to have skewed away from what the New Testament seemed to say the church was all about. Luther believed that what the New Testament forbid as particular church practices should be thrown out. Uh, Later reformers took it one step further. They said if the New Testament didn't even highlight a practice, it should not be part of any church. Over the centuries, Christian leaders who disagreed with one another on major points of doctrine formed their own churches and denominations. The result was a seemingly endless line of disputes and disagreements, mostly about small matters of theology, which led to the splintering and the fracturing of the Christian church into thousands upon thousands of denominations. And as many as 35,000 independent and non-denominational churches in the United States alone. Most reformers agreed with Luther's essential claims, but many felt that he hadn't gone far enough when it came to reforming and, and separating and distancing oneself from practices in the Catholic Church. John Calvin was born in 1509. He was only eight years old when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door. Calvin studied law in Paris, where he had his conversion experience. In his mid-twenties, he left Paris for Basel, Switzerland, where he became an avowed Protestant seeking to help reform the church. It was here in Switzerland where he finished, at age 25, his first edition of the Institutes of Christian Religion, a systematic theology of Protestant Reformation. 
Now, on a side note, I discovered this interesting fact. Uh, Calvin had to make a deal with an Italian bookbinder uh, to have his institutes bound with a romance cover novel in order to smuggle it into France. I mean, how amazing is that, to have a passion for the gospel, to want something to be read in places where you know it would be uh, not looked at kindly. John Calvin and his protege, Jean Knox, were among the second wave of reformers, and their efforts uh, resulted in the formation of the Reformed and the Presbyterian churches. Knox played a key role in the forming the Church of Scotland, which Presbyterians view as their mother church. But Calvin is seen as the theological father of both the Presbyterian and the Reformed traditions. Last week, while we were examining Lutheranism, I showed you the slide of how the Lutheran church might see the history of the Christian faith. It's their view of how the church has developed, and Luther saw himself as trying to bring Catholicism back in line with the apostolic tradition, or what New Testament uh, taught that Christianity should be like. Let me show you what the Presbyterians view as church history. Uh, They understand that Luther was on the right track, but felt he didn't go far enough in bringing them back in line with the church. And so while they value all that Luther did, uh, Presbyterians see themselves as helping bring the church back even closer in line with the apostolic tradition. Actually, if the truth be known, pretty much every church that has been founded since then thinks they're doing the same thing, trying to bring the, uh, the church back in line with what the apostolic tradition, what the early church was supposed to be. Well, this is Pastor Ken Gardner. He's an ordained Presbyterian minister. Many of you know Pastor Ken because he is currently serving as the senior pastor of our sister church in Quartz Hill, uh, Christ Our Savior United Methodist Church. He's an ordained uh, Presbyterian minister, an avid runner, biker, and triathlete. When I asked him for a picture, this is what he sent me. (laughs) So what's a Presbyterian minister doing leading a United Methodist Church, you might ask? And that is a very good question. Pastor Ken has been there since 2014. He is on loan to us Methodists from the Presbyterians. Ken told me that he had his call to ministry when he was nine years old. He was sitting in church, in a Presbyterian church, with his father. And the preacher was preaching, and he wasn't exactly sure what the pastor was saying. So he looked up to his dad and said, Dad, do you know, do you understand what it is that this man is saying? And his dad had that that glint of wisdom in his eye and that gentle, comforting tone in his voice and looked down at his son and said, Ken, sometimes it's just really hard to know. And Ken thought, well, it shouldn't be that way. I want to help make it easier to understand. Well, he sort of avoided this call to ministry over the years, and he said it wasn't until he went to seminary at age 28 that he finally gave in to God's call in his life. He entered seminary. He was blessed to serve four different Presbyterian churches, the last being Horizon Community Church here in Palmdale. He was the senior pastor there from 2001 to 2011, at which time Pastor Ken stepped away from the ministry for a few years. Before then, he was, after then, he was invited to fill the vacancy at Christ Our Savior in 2014. Now, Presbyterians are distinctive in two major ways. They adhere to a, religious, a pattern of religious thought known as Reformed theology, and their organizational structure includes active representational leadership by both ministers and church members. A friend of mine who's a Presbyterian pastor in Hawaii uh, once told me that it's rumored that the United States Congress was fashioned on the Presbyterian church structure. 
In fact, a dozen or so of the original signers of the Declaration of Independence were Presbyterian. And the King of England once referred to the American independence movement as the Presbyterian Revolt. Now, in case you're wondering about the name of the denomination, it comes from the Greek word presbyteros, meaning elders, and it was focused on this idea of democratic rule. Unlike United Methodists, Catholics, Orthodox, or even Episcopal churches, there are no bishops in the Presbyterian church. They are instead organized and run by elders. Pastor Kin said in the Presbyterian church, clergy and laity are seen as partners in ministry. He is called a teaching elder, but then there are ruling elders, laity who govern what happens are the official decision makers in the church. And each Presbyterian church chooses their elders. They choose the pastor that will come, and they choose the people among them that are raised up to be the leaders as elders. There are about 75 million Reformed or Presbyterian Christians worldwide. The largest of the Presbyterian denominations in the United States is the PCUSA, the Presbyterian Churches of the USA, who have about uh, 2.5 million members. Pastor Ken is ordained into this branch of Presbyterianism, and they're the most progressive of the groups. Pastor Ken said, uh, one of the ways you know you're at a PCUSA church is if you see an ordained woman, that we do, uh, we do allow that. Well, the PCA, or the Presbyterian Church in America, is the more conservative branch of the Presbyterians. They have about 300,000 members. They do not ordain women clergy. The EPC, or the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, is the the middle-of-the-road branch, according to Pastor Ken. They have about 70,000 active members. And the newest branch of the Presbyterian family is the ECHO, or the Evangelical Covenant Order of Presbyterians. These are churches who had one point been part of the PCUSA, but it broke away to form a more conservative denomination, uh, but not as conservative as the PCA. There are 350 congregations and 500 clergy in the ECHO movement. It's almost like you need a program to keep track of all of them, right? Well, this is Horizon Community Church, a member of the PCUSA denomination here in Palmdale. It's also the church that Pastor Ken had been the senior pastor for a decade. Pastor Ken arranged for me to go over and take some photos of the church uh, specifically for this sermon series. And they have quite a history here in the Antelope Valley, this cornerstone from 1956 uh, attests to. Their sanctuary is lovely, very traditional and straightforward in its design. And when I spoke with Pastor Ken this week about what makes Presbyterians unique in the way they look at their Christian faith, he was quick to point out their focus on the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. This is a way of saying that God is the absolute ruler reigning over every aspect of creation, that nothing happens outside of God's will. Nothing. Now, we have a role to play, of course, in God's creation, but ultimately, this world we live in is God's show, said Pastor Ken. This painting of the passion of Jesus, which they have in the front of their church at Horizon, bears witness to even something as horrible as the suffering of Jesus was part of God's plan. They echo the words of the Apostle Paul when he writes, all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to God's purpose. That's what we read this morning from Romans 8.28. The sovereignty of God helps Presbyterians understand that God's will will be done in every aspect of their lives. Ken said, Presbyterians uh, live this out uh, during the worship of their time. 
and, and they read and proclaim the Word of God, they place a high priority on the Scriptures. This is a painting that's in the back of their sanctuary. It has Psalm 119, 105 printed on it. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. As they read and proclaim God's word contained in Holy Scriptures every week, as they experience the word whenever they encounter the sacraments through baptism and Holy Communion, Presbyterians believe that they experience the palpable power of the Holy Spirit whenever they share in the bread and the wine of Jesus. And when they welcome one another into Christian faith in the sacrament of baptism, they firmly believe that God has made a special covenant with God's people. Along with the sovereignty of God, Presbyterians wholeheartedly embrace the grace of God. God's love, blessing, and favor come to us as a gift. And it has nothing to do with our being deserving. That's why it's called grace. Pastor Ken said, if you want to get to the bottom line of For Presbyterians, it's this, that they are to glorify God and to enjoy God now and forever. Presbyterians know that Jesus is the Lord of the church, but Jesus is also, Ken said, the Lord of our conscience. And much in line with Lutherans, Presbyterians believe that every person can be led and guided by the Holy Spirit. They don't need a bishop or a pastor or a church council to tell them what to believe or how to live their lives. The Holy Spirit can do that for each and every person. Friends, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters have much to teach us. How would our lives be different if we intentionally sought to serve the Lord, to live according to God's precepts and to follow God's will, and all things saying that God was our sovereign king? Now, we may not understand everything that happens in our lives, but we can believe that God is sovereign and know that we can trust God's heart even when we don't seem to understand God's plans. That God isn't out to punish us or to get us. That God is working for good in our lives and in the world around us each and every day, no matter what may come our way. What a blessing to wake up every morning and just offer a simple prayer. Use me today, God, in whatever way. Use me to accomplish your will in my life, in this community, at work. And that we might use our lives to glorify God through our thoughts, words, and deeds. But in addition... That God wants us to enjoy this life, to enjoy the blessings that God has given us. We don't have to simply endure life or get through it. That every moment can be an opportunity to enjoy what God has given us. For God's grace comes to us each and every day in a variety of ways. My brothers and sisters, God will do amazing things to us, with us and through us if only we'll allow God to do that and respond to God's promptings. Thanks be to God for our Presbyterian friends. May they continue to be faithful and fruitful branches on the family tree of Christianity. And may we remember that we are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen.